Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Bench to Boardroom podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Steele, and we have a fantastic episode for you today. I know I say that every week. Today, it's always true, but today is a fantastic episode because today I am interviewing Dr. Diane Bovenkamp, who is the Vice President of Scientific Affairs at the Bright Focus Foundation, which funds research in macular degeneration, Alzheimer's, and glaucoma. So that's how I know Diane is from applying for grants from the Bright Focus Foundation and, of course, meeting her at other glaucoma-related conferences. Uh, I love Diane's story because, like a lot of the other guests that I've interviewed so far, I feel like she has taken her talents and applied them in a very unique way. So after getting her PhD in biochemistry from Queen's University in Canada, she did a postdoc at Harvard and then also at Johns Hopkins. I know, she's got a heck of a pedigree. But along those same lines, she took her interests in communicating science and as you'll hear Diane talk about connecting people and volunteered to work at some of the communications offices at Johns Hopkins, which then led her to her current position or at least onto the path to her current position as the VP of Scientific Affairs. Diane is the president of the Camera Club in Baltimore as an avid photographer, and she is all over LinkedIn with the posts that she makes, uh, the different conferences that she attends, and the people that she meets, and she's just a wonderful, dynamic personality. So without further ado, my interview with the great connector herself, Dr. Diane Bovenkamp. Dr. Diane Bovenkamp, welcome to the Bench to Boardroom podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I'm this so excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Oh, this is this is going to be so great. And I, I feel like I've really gotten to know you over the last, like, maybe what, year, year and a half? Like, I, I've known your name for such a long time associated with the Bright Focus Foundation. And as a former glaucoma researcher, I knew a lot about the foundation. And so I think I saw your name as someone to communicate with about the grants. But I feel like just over this last year and a half, we've seen each other at so many conferences. I've actually gotten to know you, and it's been so much fun. I, I love it. And I think... Um... I think you, I remember at the AOPT meeting, you were telling me, I have this idea about doing like a webcast. Mm -hmm. Do you think I should go for it? You were still, and I'm going, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that you ended up doing it. I've, I've, it's, they've been amazing so far. So thank you so much. It's quite an honor of me to be chosen in the first uh, time. Please, please. <laughs> it, it's an honor. It's an honor for me to have you. It's, this is going to be so much fun. So. Yeah. You are like a star on social media. It seems like you're everywhere on LinkedIn. You're always posting things. But for people who might be living under a rock who haven't uh, connected with you on LinkedIn yet, please introduce yourself. All right. Uh, I'm Diane Bovenkamp with a K, <laughs> uh, Dutch origin. Uh, and um, so I'm Vice President Scientific Affairs. That's basically the chief uh, research officer. Mm -hmm. at uh, Bright Focus. It's a nonprofit that funds glaucoma, uh, Alzheimer's disease and related dementia and macular degeneration. So, um, so I oversee the global operations of all of those programs. And 
I guess the unofficial that I think I am. And that's why I guess uh, with the social media is that I consider myself to be a connector, right? Mm -hmm. So I connect scientists with each other that I see in different areas. There's common features of disease, you know, amongst all of these and I bring them together. But I also, uh, we also communicate with affected families. And so I love connecting them to the information to empower them as well. Oh, do you have uh, patient summits as well as uh, scientific summits where you meet the patients? We don't have patient summits, but we actually have a 1-800 number uh, that and an email info at brightfocus.org. Anyone in the world can email, we'll give them info. And if there's, um, we have three PhDs at our organization, Dr. Preeti Subramanian, as you know, she's in charge of our vision programs and Dr. Sharon Rossi's in charge of our uh, Alzheimer's program. And, you know, if there's any stumpers for uh, science questions, then one of the three of us PhDs can answer that question. Wow. So it's, it's rather fun because it kind of fits with my philosophy of, you know, I've been passionate about science all my life and giving, you know, I think information is, is, is power. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think especially in the age of the internet where you know we can ask Dr. Google anything, it's probably very reassuring for patients and their families to know that there's actual scientists backing up some of the information that they are receiving. Yeah, that's vetted, right? That's because vetted. there's a lot of fake news and fake science and everything yes. out there, so. Yes, absolutely, so. All right, so. Um, you say you've, you've always had an interest in science. So, I mean, tell us, tell us where that started from. What was you, you grew up in Canada. What was that like? I, I love being in Canada. Um, my, my parents, I, I come from a, a, I guess a non-traditional background. So my dad's an organic chemist. My mom is a nurse, right? So she was in ER, neurology and orthopedics. And I ended up being a biochemist and my brother an engineer. So you can imagine what those uh, like daily, nightly dinner table conversations were like. <laughs> Your Thanksgiving dinner sounds a little intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, when we got together with most of the rest of my family weren't weren't in science. So okay. but it was uh, yeah, it was it was lots of fun. And uh, I still do remember uh, my uh you know my parents tongue in cheek saying i've always i always knew from a young age i wanted to get a phd okay you know i think one of your other speakers said they didn't know what a phd was but i always and uh my parents said well you can you can start dating once you get your phd Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so is that your one of your but first anyways, rebellions no has always been in my life <laughs> <laughs> out of curiosity did, did you date any phds was that like your dating pool? Oh, the P the PhD that I I dated, I married. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> so we're a two PhD family. We actually met in the biochemistry program in uh, at Queens University. But um, yeah. So um, you know, there it is again. I forgot what your original question was. No, that's, I'm just thinking box checked. You know, your parents are like, yes, she has satisfied <laughs> her requirements. Yeah, yeah um, and I went into bio, and I went into biochemistry because, and I didn't actually know that I wanted to go into that, but I knew that I wanted to. I love figuring out how things worked, and I loved medicine. Yeah, and uh, organic chemistry was my favorite uh, class, and uh, and it's funny. My dad didn't even he has an or, he was an organic chemist, but he didn't even teach me anything. So it's funny. I don't know if it's genetic or anything. 
but uh, but yeah and i stumbled upon biochemistry and mm -hmm. i i'm really grateful that i did have that education up there um queen's university you know where i went it's one of the top five universities we used to say it was harvard of the north and i got a really great education um Beautiful. there and so it really helps me in my job now and to switch between different careers because i went from cancer research cardiovascular disease research i learned rare inherited retinal degenerative degenerative disease eye disease and then glaucoma and now the three diseases now but there's common features amongst all of them so it was a great if that's one thing that um if people are contemplating going into science get something that if you don't quite know exactly what you want to do then get something that might you know give you the most options of of moving moving on to other science areas in the future sure and it's interesting because, for example, someone like me, I I essentially started in neuroscience and I ended in ophthalmology. Like I made a very short, <laughs> that was a short little jump for me. And I've stayed in glaucoma ever since my, my PhD because I'm just, I'm one of those oddballs that's fascinated by the trabecular meshwork and intraocular pressure and everything. But I'm always amazed by people like you who can who have made this jump for all these different types and these different systems and different types of disease. And if it's inherited or if it's age related, you know, that's, that's, that's really very, that's really very impressive to me. Cause I mean, you're right. There are some overall processes that are the same, like fibrosis maybe, or, you know, contraction or, you know, mutant protein cell division, you know, but, but it, it, to be able to jump from one to the other, and especially the way you do now to understand and comprehend all these different grants and all these different disease systems. I'm, that's very impressive. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's just like, it's like layers of an onion. You build information upon each other every, every year. But um, I think you didn't really make a jump in my opinion. No, right? the eye really is, is is part of the brain, right? So yeah, the, was it the eye is an outpocketing of the diencephalon. Yeah. <laughs> my mentor used to say that, so I could still hear it in my head. Yeah, they the eye is an outpocketing of the diencephalon. So then, what was your uh, dissertation in then? Ah, yes. So, um, so it was. Uh, I, so I was in biochemistry, but mm -hmm. I was doing my PhD with Peter Greer in the cancer research lab. So I was okay. in the cancer area. But I was the outlier in the lab working with zebrafish and he awesome. that was it was like a mouse um, mouse model lab. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at FIPS and Fez. And so um, anyway, so I did it on the. Um, oh, gosh, what was the title? Oh, yes, here it is. F receptor tyrosine kinases, nervous system development and angiogenesis, cloning and characterization of F receptors from zebrafish and mice. That was the. Um, that was the uh, title of my thesis, and I just found out that uh, you can, if you want, it's you can get it online because uh, <laughs> uh, whatever you call it, uh, the National Archives uh, mm -hmm. makes a scan of all of the PhDs in Canada, so you can get it online as a PDF. It's fun. <laughs> oh, awesome! So you're the only one doing zebrafish. I mean. Um silly question like do zebrafish get tumors i mean like what was the connection between mice and zebrafish well i mean i think i think it was like someone on the floor was working with zebrafish and so it was i actually started it as my undergraduate thesis project in biochemistry with peter and then it was just so successful that he just said do you want to stay and do a phd on it and i said yes because I fell in love with zebrafish. Anybody who 
you know, uh, the first time you look into a microscope and you see these zebrafish are totally transparent. And so, and I mean, that was back, back, so back when you could actually like do, you know, publish papers on cloning genes, right? Now it's like, you know, you can't because all the genome has been um, characterized, but yeah, it, it was a really good, solid um, education because like zebrafish, um, you know, they, they can, they can make so many more, um, you know, they just release the eggs and sperm in a tank, you siphon it up and you can, you know, within 24 hours, you know, you can see these embryos developing and they're transparent for like four or five days. That's <laughs> so cool. it's really cool. You can actually see it's good for neural development mm -hmm. uh, and, and angiogenesis. So it's, uh, awesome. it's just really, really cool. <laughs> My, it, in my PhD program, I mean, I think it was all mammalian research. I don't think anyone was doing anything outside of that. I mean, it was always rats, mice, hamsters, rabbits, you know. Um, and it's funny because talking to my niece now, she has a friend working on lizards, you know, and there's someone yeah. in her lab that's got three different types of snakes that they work on, which sounds like a nightmare to me. I would probably leave that lab immediately. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Snakes and spiders for me. No, yep. thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> but, but actually, it, connecting it with my current job, yeah. zebrafish are kind of like newts that you, okay. you, it, you, their fins, if they have part of their fins cut off or actually even their optic nerve, it will grow back. Wow. So anyone regeneration should think about using zebrafish. Uh, if you want to especially look at developmental uh, mm -hmm. regeneration and neurobiology. So, wow, that's going to be a really, that's a really interesting topic. And I mean, we could easily dive into <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. why that is, but that's beyond the scope of, uh, that's beyond the scope of the podcast. So we can um, do another hour just on we can that do another hour on <laughs> zebrafish regeneration. That's Although so cool. it's really hard to get grants in zebrafish, which kind of helped to kickstart me to go into a research related career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, do you guys, I mean, do you see a lot of zebrafish uh, or invertebrate research grants where you're at now? Or is it mostly oh, rats? So we, do, we do get some of them. Yeah. Okay. We've, we funded a number of people with uh, zebrafish, but it's just like any, um, any model system. Mm -hmm. um, it's, depends on what you use it for and what question you have to use the strengths of that model system and the genetics uh, to be able to move that forward. I mean, one of the disadvantages is there's tetraploidy, you know, duplicate genes in zebrafish. And so it just so happened the one, one of the genes that, you know, is focused on didn't have a mammalian homologue. So that kind of was a mm, dead end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that, but I mean, F receptors in general, but, and then when I went to, um, I continued to work on zebrafish when I went and did my postdoc down mm -hmm. at Boston Children's Hospital in Harvard and cloned another few uh, tyrosine kinase receptors and neuropillins also involved in vascular biology mm -hmm. and um, um, neural development. So that was really cool. Yeah. So while you're doing all of this zebra research, I, I have to ask you the same question I ask everybody. What was your give it all up and run away job fantasy, fantasy job? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, well, the other passion, I'm very passionate about science and having other people understand science, but my other passion that I've had my whole life is also photography. So 
I always wanted to be like a world famous photographer like Yusuf Karsh or Ansel Adams and um you know uh and and you know right now I'm I'm the um you know I bring that into my volunteer work. So right now I'm the president of the Baltimore Camera Club uh and you know I've I've held some volunteer positions in that as well. We compete every month. I I it's it's such a thrill to have some of my photos, you know, win competitions uh and you know my passion would be probably to do you know black and white street photography or documentary uh photography focusing on humans or human related things if that makes sense <laughs> i love that do you have an instagram page for your photography i do but i i only started to use it uh recently okay. um uh yeah so i i yeah yeah, okay. I can, I can, I can give that out. There's, you know, Facebook, Facebook and Instagram are what I, I do for my photography life. And then uh, X slash Twitter and uh, LinkedIn are uh, what I focus on for my uh, science life. But as you know, as you mentioned with the social media, that is kind of bringing my two passions together or three yeah. passions. One is science, one is photography, and the other is supporting other scientists. And yeah. I, I remember you trying so hard to get a lightning photo uh, while we were at AOPT and there was a, oh. a storm approaching while we were on that early morning walk. And it was, I mean, just to set the scene, it was, it was beautiful. You know, the sun was just starting to come up. So it was that nice, like hazy, cloudy morning. But off in the distance, there's some lightning and Diane just kept stopping and like holding up her phone. Like, I'm just waiting. I never I'm, got it. Never got it. Because as soon as you would put the camera down, the lightning would come and we were like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be patient. Actually, mm -hmm. I think photography is just like science. You have to be patient. Yeah. Oh, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. And then be at the right place at the right time. Yeah. The only other scientist photographer I know is Ted Acott. Have you oh. seen him? Do, do you know Ted? No. no. He, him and his wife. Uh, so Ted is. Uh, oh no, no, I, I do, I do know him, but yeah. uh, I haven't talked to him about his photography. Oh, you should. That's what I meant. Um, him and his wife Mary go on a lot of uh, different like, safari trips, or they go to Peru, they go to Costa Rica and South America and different Micronesian islands. I mean, and they have beautiful photos. And so he's he's yeah. got uh, an Instagram page as well, and just really remarkable oh, stuff when you think about. Them. You think about here's somebody who researches intraocular pressure and oh no he's got pictures of a pride of lions you know it it, it just really beautiful birds and stuff it's remarkable so yeah I'll wow. I'll send you his his uh, his Thank Instagram you. page it's uh, you would really enjoy it so then you went from Queens University to Harvard for your postdoc and then from Harvard you went on to Johns Hopkins right mm -hmm. so what were you, so was that a was that a faculty position that you got or what what brought you to Hopkins. Well, it's interesting. So if the topic about this is, um, you know, I, I, I don't have a very typical career path. It was kind of more like following my interests and opportunities. And I'm really, you know, the preface for this is I've I guess I haven't really had a lot of mentorship on my career path. I didn't really think to do that. Um, I, you know, I love, you know, working with, you know, Peter Greer, um, 
for my PhD and Michael Klagsbrand, you know, in the vascular biology program when the great Judah Folkman was alive, you know, just going to those, just soaking up all the science. And then I was with Jenny Van Eyck actually doing, um, you know, proteomics of cardiovascular disease at Hopkins. Um, but um, when I went to Hopkins and I was pretty much kind of working in a, I made an arrangement with her. I was working in it uh, like five days a week, but I also was volunteering at the Johns Hopkins Office of Corporate Communications to build up a portfolio for communications uh, articles, like writing about publications of, uh, of uh, Hopkins scientists. And um, because at the time when I was in my postdoc at, um, in Boston, I thought I really loved what I was doing and I was good at it, but it, I didn't feel passionate about it. And I didn't want to like focus on one thing. Like, you know, I was just seeing this like long stretch of my life, focusing on one little part of the scientific universe or multiverse, whatever. And, and I want to learn about everything about science and also, as I said, you know, be a connector and, you know, be more social. And so I actually researched many different careers and actually there was a book, I think it's still available. It might be a little outdated, but I think it gives a good smorgasbord. Um, I think about 25 chapters. It's by Cynthia Robbins Roth and it's called uh, Leaving the Ivory Tower. So I think I've heard of that one. Yeah. And it just gave all these really great ideas for alternative careers, like things I hadn't heard of before. It's like, well, you know, um, venture capital, uh, angel funders, they need to, if they're going to fund in a, in a company or a startup, they, they need to have a scientific advisor. That's one job you could do. Um, two, there were, um, two other career paths that uh, I actually X'd out on because I did a whole, and this is an advice for someone if, if you want, like just do a whole bunch of informational interviews and or do a volunteer job, right? Yeah. Um, and then you'll figure out whether you like doing it and if you'll get paid enough. So I really love museums. I love history. Mm -hmm. um, I love science. I think that would be great. And so I volunteered at the Museum of Science in Boston. And then when I went to um, Baltimore, I was a docent at the Maryland Science Center and I loved it. I really loved it, but you didn't get paid anything. Yeah, <laughs> It's like, yeah, I couldn't really, you know, do you know, I, I wanted I wanted to actually get paid for my PhD career, and I didn't see a lot. So anyway, so uh, that's one thing. If you uh, have a passion about something, and you know, you can just have it as a as as a hobby. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was fun. Um, I, and so so I X that out, and then the okay. other one I was thinking of was uh, I'm going to get to the <laughs> I'm going to get to the communication. No, uh, the, the next thing I was thinking of was to be uh, in regulatory affairs. Okay. Because I just thought that was really cool to try and help scientists, you know, patent their ideas and connect them with the angel funders or the companies mm -hmm. uh, so that we could get, you know, get these in the hands of someone who'll get it to the affected families. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's, you know, 
And, um, and so I did a whole bunch of informational interviews and I figured out, you know what, I think, uh, if I wanted to not have a ceiling, um, I would have to get a law degree. And I said, there's no way I'm going to go to school for another four years. So I just <laughs> said, nah, but my interest in, uh, regulatory affairs really helped mm -hmm. me out in the job I have now, which, uh, part of it is contract negotiations. And so for, we only just recently last year, got rid of our IP con part of our contract. Okay. Um, because we didn't want to interfere. We found it was interfering in the the ability of, you know, we got feedback from academic institutions that having this was kind of like a uh, putting a lead weight on their ability to negotiate with um, licensees. Okay. So, yeah, and it was just a lot of time to negotiate it. But anyway, so that's my interest and that helped me out with uh, uh, negotiating that. So, so just because you decide you don't want to go into something, it doesn't mean that it won't help you further on down the line. Sure. So I did a lot of education of, um, you know, gave myself an honorary JD, I guess. But to go in the career, I think you would have to have a JD. And I just said, no, I don't, I don't. I know a, a number of your your speakers, your interviewees said, well, it'd be good to get an MBA and whatever. And for me, it was just like, you know, I've been in school for, what is it, 25 or 30 years right. post high school. It's like, nah, I don't want to go back to school. What can I do with my degree now? And well, so, that's... yeah, so I, yeah. So I went into the communications and mm -hmm. um, I pretty much uh, found that volunteer position. That's one thing I would recommend not to do. I did it like pro bono, you know, mm -hmm. volunteered um, for a year, two days a week um, at the uh, Office of Corporate Communications. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was great because it helped, it helped me to get my research, uh, sorry, my, um, communications portfolio going. And sure. I, I think that I really decided to go into communications because, uh, again, I love public speaking mm -hmm. and I love writing about science and scientists. So, but I needed the portfolio. So, uh, kudos to Joanna Downer for, uh, being the one person of my probably like 1000 uh, cold call emails <laughs> to get back to me. <laughs> That's how you got that job. You just, you reached yeah. out to people and just said, Hey, I, I, this, this is something I'm interested in and I'd like to just volunteer my time and help you out. I, I yes. mean, because my, my first thought is like, I'm not sure how many mentors would be into that. So I mean, how did that work out with your time in the lab? Yes. So, uh, Jenny, Dr. Van Eyck was so is, well, she has been very supportive, you mm -hmm. know, uh, for my whole career and, um, yeah, so she, so yeah, so I was essentially doing a postdoc position, but Hopkins wouldn't allow, don't, don't, don't allow part-time postdocs. So I was called mm -hmm. a research technician too. <laughs> Oh, but it's basically, I just did research in the lab, right? And it was great. It was the best time of my life. I was the most productive in papers because I just, I had my own project. But then I said, you know what? I'm going to help everyone in the lab finish off their papers, you know, yeah. and, and or people who, you know, were from 
um, Jenny's, um, you know, who were graduate students who had one last figure to do, but they were writing their thesis. I said, I'll do that for you. And then, so I got, you know, five or six papers in that one year. That's awesome. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so that, you know, if you don't care about titles, you know, she knew I was a postdoc and <laughs> working at a postdoc level. It just, yeah. you know, didn't, didn't say that on, but that's, yeah, she was very understanding. I was working, it was very tiring year sure. and a half, I guess, of my life. So working seven days a week, you know, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, volunteering, yeah, volunteering at, um, the office of corporate communications a Thursday and Friday, and then working the other five days in the lab. So, wow. Wow. So I, 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 when you started this section, I, I heard you say, you know, you have, you've just kind of followed your passions. You haven't had like a typical career path. And I honestly, in a lot of ways, I, as I'm hearing you talk, I feel like I'm hearing a lot of myself in that. And I, and I'm guessing that a lot of other people hear that too, because at least in the beginning, when you're a scientist, I mean, you, you plan everything, right? You plan your experiments, you plan pretty far in advance. You, if you're also a parent, you probably know what meals you're going to be having this week because you did the shopping on a certain day. I mean, and, and I definitely grew up with a planner. My, the story is that my mom actually planned which day she was going to have me by C-section because based <laughs> on my father's work schedule and my sister's school schedule, I mean, like she knew like, no, no, Friday, wow. this Friday is going to be the best day, you know? So, so be like as an 18 year old, I remember thinking like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to marry this guy that I've been dating in high school and we're going to live here and we're going to do this. And like, I had everything all and set up. We're going to have the three kids and the, or the 2.4 kids. And a dog and a cat. And ask me now, I, I live in a totally different part of the country. I'm married to a race car driver and I have three dogs and two cats. So I mean, <laughs> things totally change. But... <laughs> That's so exciting. Well, my, well, my point is, like, I, I, I go back to what Julie Tetzloff said on episode two, which is life throws you curveballs and you just have to roll with it. You know, I mean, if you think this is the way you're going to go and then life just throws something in your way, I, you adapt. It's it's what we have to do. So I, I love this idea that you you not only adapted, but you did your research and you really spent a lot of time thinking like, what do I want to do with this knowledge base that I have? Because I know that what I'm experiencing right now, you know, this focusing on like one or two proteins or a handful of phosphorylation events. I mean, I know exactly what you mean. You, you start, you start a scientific presentation about a disease state and then it comes down to, you know, one or two amino acid residues. Like, okay, well let's, let's keep that 30,000 foot view. So I, I, I hear that loud and clear. Um, but then you did your research and I love this idea that you did informational interviews. And I think now one of the things that I've been trying to emphasize to my listeners is when you go to conferences, find people like you find people who maybe are doing jobs that you might be interested in doing, because there's nothing wrong with going up to someone at a booth and saying, can you please tell me about your position? Cause I think anybody would answer that question and offer some guidance or provide an email or something. I mean, people are much more open, especially when you ask them about themselves, but you know, people are much more open to sharing their career experiences with younger people. And I think that's a fantastic way of learning what options are available to you and what you might be interested in. Yes. And I think uh, the other thing to not forget is poster sessions, right? 
Yes. You can ask people about their science there, but you can also have a side conversation just saying, hey, I see you're at whatever company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me what that's like. Exactly. Right? Or and the opposite. If they don't have time to talk about it, then you just say, hey, can I go? We meet later, blah, blah, blah for coffee. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really, you, you can just, I think that's, um, that's the, there, you can plan to a certain extent, but um, I've, I've realized that you just have to embrace the entropy and love the entropy. Love uh, I think um, one of the hardest things for me to do was to learn how to think on my feet to answer questions, say in mm-hmm. a seminar. When, um, when I moved from Hopkins to Foundation Fighting Blindness, which was mm-hmm. my first um, position at, um, a nonprofit funder and they fund uh they fund macular degeneration which is an overlap of skill that mm-hmm. i had that eventually helped me get to uh bright focus um but also rare inherited retinal degenerative diseases but um again it was like a cold call applying for position i'm sitting in the lab and then uh dr stephen rose is the chief research officer at ffb says mm-hmm. um you know, did you want to, you know, try and, uh, you know, write, <laughs> let's do like a trial for, you know, mm-hmm. let's see what your writing is for eight. I think it was like four or eight months or something. So mm-hmm. that overlapped with when I was in the lab too. Um, and then eventually, and this is the other thing they may, a lot of times, um, you know, you don't get the position that you apply for, but they kind of make up a position to fit your skills. So mm-hmm. I was a hybrid communication slash I guess, science program officer, but I was director of science information and programs. Um, so I would follow and make sure that the scientists were doing all of the research they were supposed to do, but then I'd write it. A lot of it was ghost writing for development to raise funds or, you know, putting articles on the website. Um, I can't even remember the question. Sorry. First of all, I love this. I love embrace the entropy. I think we may have our episode title. That's that's brilliant. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's perfect. I love that. Um, no, I think um, I just had like entropy of thought right there. But yeah, right. <laughs> I love that. Now, I think um, I, I guess that that's my question. So most people, when they think about medical writers or they think about scientific writers, they think about people who. Um, write up other people's research for a company, you know, I mean, certainly we've, I, 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 I've interviewed at least one and I know there's a few more that I'm probably going to interview in the future who just love that aspect of writing, which by the way, I maintain kudos to anyone who loves writing. It's like pulling teeth for me. I, 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 I can't go much further than an abstract. It's just too much. Agreed. I, I like, I like writing, but I like talking mm. so much See? better. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Um, I think I, I, I like this idea that you went into foundation fighting blindness rather than a company, because again, most people, when they think about medical writers, they think about writing for a company. So, uh, and of course, if you talk to researchers, they think about writing for a company and they think, well, what about, what's the slant in the research? What, what spin is being done for that? So maybe it makes certain people uncomfortable. So when you transition to, um, uh, Foundation Fighting Blindness, what uh, what your initial role was as a writer and then you moved on to, to grants or how did that work? Yeah, so so I was at Foundation Fighting Blindness for about four years mm-hmm. and 
it was a really, I loved, I loved that job. Uh, I would say it was half writing, half, tra I traveled to 37 states in the US because wow. there were about 50 chapters and uh, gave presentations. So uh, at, you know, Foundation Fighting Blindness actually had, um, uh, as you asked me at the beginning, uh, they have, um, you know, events for affected individuals oh, and there yeah. were chapters. Okay. Uh, and so we would bring in a local PhD and a local mm -hmm. clinician, and then there would be me. So I would do the general overview keynote and, uh, and then answer questions. And I really, that really brought together a whole bunch of my passions, right? About empowering people, getting them to understand science and, um, communicating, getting yeah, people, yeah. And then also helping to connect them with researchers. So that oh, was great. fun. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think that, uh, um, and, and also, and you know, I mean, this is like bench to boardroom. And so in my current position and in the position at uh, Foundation Fighting Blindness, you know, I would be in all of the science subcommittees, board mm. meetings, right? So okay. <laughs> literally yeah. I went from bench to boardroom, right? Mm -hmm. you know, taking minutes and or, and, and now as vice president at, um, you know, the lead scientist, I present all the science for the board to approve. So, um, I'm also thinking about all the connections that you must be able to make to some of these really big names in these fields. I mean, it must be absolutely fascinating to talk to members of these different scientific advisory boards or you know, travel to these different meetings and meet the PIs and their students. I mean, that, that must be absolutely fascinating to hear it directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak, as you communicate with these people. I, I love meeting people. So and cool. um, I think, um, it's funny because I'm, I guess maybe because I was at, you know, Queens and then Harvard and Hopkins. And then, mm -hmm. you know, at a couple, I've met so many people who win, have won Nobel prizes that I'm not really intimidated. Wow. <laughs> they're, they're, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like everyone else. Right. So, uh, and I just <laughs> love sitting there having a conversation. It's like, ah, I just go have a coffee and and see, see how they are. And, and if they're miffed by me just being so calm and casual, then that's on them. <laughs> Diane, actually, this, this is great because one of the things that I remember from like the very first Arvo I ever went to as a graduate student, and oh my God, here come some of these big names and these people whose papers I've read, and oh my God, they're looking at my data. I mean, how, it, it, how does one kind of calm themselves down? Like you're, you're meeting a Nobel laureate. I mean, and they're, they, they, they maybe put their pants on one leg at a time, but they can also wear their medal while they're putting their pants on. So, I mean, like how, how do oh, and you they can also cut you down very viciously if they want to. Yes. Oh God, that hasn't <laughs> happened. Has it? Has anyone? No, uh, well, no, I mean, um, I mean, you know, in uh, scientific talks, you know, some people who 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 have their egos in it, they like to um, they're not asking really you a question. Um, they're actually just trying to show the world that that they know something about it as well. And so, you know, you just give them an out and <laughs> say, that's really great and fascinating. <laughs> but anyways, no, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I of course, like everyone, you're. Um, you're intimidated, uh, but 
I I think that um yeah, people are people and uh if you kind of put that in your head uh then uh and just try and focus on who they are and trying to ask them questions and I guess just listen, listen more at the beginning. Um or well, try to listen throughout. Um then then you'll find it more rewarding and just kind of get out of your own head. And, and I think the one thing to remember is you are unique. You are the culmination of your own, you know, upbringing, your own, you know, cultural knowledge, your scientific knowledge, no one, you know, you know, all of the science knowledge, as well as all of your um, volunteer positions, and interests you you should have a seat at the table because you have an innovative idea and just because someone has like a nobel prize or something you know to their name it doesn't mean that their idea is better than yours i'm gonna cut that that's gonna go all over linkedin every single connection <laughs> i make I'm oh god just, i'm gonna get that. like rounds now <laughs> no no diane that was beautiful that was absolutely beautiful and i i mean it because we all feel like so first of all in academia we're we're all just part of the team right you know you're you're a little cog in the wheel and you're just doing your part to advance and that's how it should be but i think especially for young people they are easily intimidated by egos they're easily intimidated by um people who have that kind of air about them but a lot a lot of these connections can and should be made just by talking to people and reaching out and it doesn't matter if what necessarily their expertise is because you also have expertise and i and i i, I love that because i mean people have said this to me in the past too you know you're the expert in the room and i always laugh and say oh god no, I, I don't know anything <laughs> you're We're in trouble about? if you're relying on me <laughs> god forbid <laughs> Because and, and and I say that because like you you and I both have met the experts. We've been in those rooms yeah. with the actual experts, you know. But that well, doesn't mean that you don't have something else to contribute, and that's okay. Yeah. You still have something to bring to the table. So I I think that was absolutely beautiful. We're gonna we're gonna put a bow on that, and Great. we're gonna cut that. I love it. Merry Christmas, early. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Um, <laughs> so uh, so and the other thing though to realize mm -hmm. is you know it's. It can be lonely at the top, right? So yes. some of the Nobel Prize winners or whatever the big people put, whoever mm -hmm. big people, they 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 would love it to have. They they're probably love to mentor the next generation. They would yes. love to have a yeah. genuine conversation from someone who's passionate about whatever they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. And um, and just because you know maybe someone looks surly, maybe they just have like resting bitch face or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I have that. That's why I smile a lot because when, you know, because, you know, when I'm just neutral and I'm happy, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, you know, my face, whatever. Anyway. So, um, guess yeah, I ever I thought about that. And I guess I ever thought that about you, Diane, but okay. <laughs> oh, anyways, I think anyone looks that way in their passport photo though. I mean, we all just look very surly in our passport photos, don't we? Yeah, because they just watch yeah. you so just but anyways, relax I digress. Anyway. Just remember that um, if you just look at it as everybody is interested in talking to you, if you're interested in them too, and it's, it's not like a one way, it's a give and take, and they can learn something from you and you can learn something from them. And Absolutely. Um, 
you know, and if they reject you, then, you know, it's on them. So uh, it's the saying that I always say uh, that somehow I've learned ever since, since I came to the U.S. It's like, you can't get it if you don't ask. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to pause for just one second. Now, I think this is... I think this is a great conversation to have because I, I'm curious now, you know, you're talking about your experiences, but what do you see? You, you meet a lot of young people and, and a lot of young researchers. And so what do you see as, um, I, I don't know, maybe like some of the threads that combine them? Like what, what do they, what are they concerned about in terms of their futures? What are they, uh, if they want to go into industry, you know, do you, do you see a common thread there? I mean, like how, how do you, how do you mentor some of these young people that you meet uh, through the through the grant funding? Well, the the interesting thing is, I think that going into a lab and industry isn't an mm-hmm. alternative or whatever career anymore. I mean, even bright focus grants, you can apply for a postdoctoral fellowship or the standard award or whatever from a for profit organization as well as from a government agency or uh, an academic institution to us. I mean, and I think that a lot of other funding agencies are accepting that. And there are plenty of examples of people who go back and forth between academia and for-profit. So I don't think it, I don't think that going to do research in industry is as um, radical as it used to be. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. that said, I think that there's different um, there's there's different expectations and different skills. I mean, the cool thing is you mm-hmm. don't have to write grants, uh, yes. but but you can write a grant. Say you're doing a postdoc at a um, industry, uh, mm-hmm. but you have to work on X project for whatever you're assigned, and you have to be ready for that project to maybe die and you be given a new one. But you could also mm-hmm. apply for postdoctoral fellowship, say from Bright Focus, and ask the organization if you can work on your pet project in your spare time. Do you know what I mean? And that could mm. be something that could either, you know, benefit the company, you know, because it's your yeah. innovation, and or you know, maybe you could take it back to um, industry or to government or to another, in- sorry, to academia or government or whatever. Uh, so I think. Mm. I think uh, so. And what are a lot of common questions that people have? I think I think actually the ability to get funds is getting so difficult in the U.S. and and other countries that um, I I think that that that's the part of the deciding factor. Um, And, you know, organizations like Bright Focus are trying to help with that. But, you know, there's only so much money to go around, too. And I think uh, I'd like to recall there's there were there were studies that were done by NIH, right? I know there was one mm-hmm. in like 2005, and then they did a, like an update ten years later, and so maybe 2015 ish, and mm-hmm. they said that only six percent of PhDs actually go on mm-hmm. to get an assistant professorship. Okay, mm-hmm. so 94% of us go on to not do an assistant professorship at a academic right. institution. Like that is something you need to keep in your mind and maybe have a plan, right? Um, 
alternative anymore. Yeah. 94% of us are doing something else. It's not the alternative. It is not the you alternative. Shouldn't consider it that's why I call it a research-related career. Um, but mm. also, uh, the age you get your first independent R01 is 45. Oh, wow. Yes. And oh, that was that. like, well, whatever, like eight years ago. So I don't even know what it is now. So if you're passionate about it, if you're passionate and I, I, I see scientists at academic institutions as entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. you are the CEO of your own startup. Okay. Which is your lab. Right. And you mm -hmm. are trying to do you know, write for grants, which is kind of like business plan <laughs> and totally. making connections, totally. you know, that like collaborations mm -hmm. to try and support your lab. Right. And so I think the best advice is to try and get great mentors that can help you not only with the science that you're doing, but kind of help you navigate along the career path and then choose wisely <laughs> what kind of environment you want like just think deep down in your gut and trust your gut that's one thing i didn't do at the beginning i didn't trust my gut and uh normally my gut is right and get to know what your strengths are right so if you really love teaching then you might want to go into a um mainly undergraduate um you know academic institution where you can well, the cool thing about that, a lot of times, you know, your 75% or 100% of your salary is paid for because you're teaching in the year and then you can yep. do the research in the summer or whatever you want to mm -hmm. do. Um, so, yeah, but if you want the high powered Harvard and Hopkins, you can do that too. <laughs> you just uh, have to be ready for whatever hoops you have to jump through. Yeah, right. I, I, I love that idea. I want to go back to this idea that you're, you are the CEO mm -hmm. of your own little company yep. and that is your lab, yep. you know, and I love that idea because I've had people ask me what types of experiences they should put on their resume as they're mm -hmm. busy converting their CV to a resume, you know, um, and there's plenty of videos out there on how you could do that online. But um, I, I think thinking of it that way is perfect because if any student thinks about it, they have plenty of communication experience they have plenty of writing experience they've led teams maybe not in a formalized setting but they've probably been a ta they've probably done labs with undergraduates or with graduate students they've managed budgets because they had their own small grant and they've had to manage you know their spend they've probably and, done development I mean, I think, work by leading funders around the lab yes yes exactly so i i love that idea um because one of the questions that I think about a lot is if you're an industry curious trainee, how do you optimize your time? And maybe just switching the mindset puts everything in a slightly different context. And so I like this idea that you could think about your own career, at least the thing that you're working on right now. If you think of it as a company, then I think maybe you can start to um, maybe, what's the word I'm trying to say? I don't know, it just becomes a little bit more approachable, perhaps, or, you know, you could see the parallels between academics and industry and how you can use your skill sets. Well, and I think that um, at, when I was at Harvard and Hopkins, they actually have, um, I can't remember exactly what they're called, but I went, I went to some of them because I was thinking about going into industry at one point too. And yeah. it's like entrepreneurial clubs, 
where you can actually go oh, yeah. and learn from CEOs, uh, like learn how to write a business plan, learn uh, how to write a lab, uh, how to run a lab. I mean, you could join that. Yeah. And, and at the very least, that's where you can meet like-minded people and do informational interviews. Um, but you can learn a lot from that, even if you're, you stay, you decide to stay in academia because you really should think of yourself yeah. as an entrepreneur. And I know that's, that's okay. kind of the love, right? That, you know, other than maybe, I guess the department head or the, the Dean or something, you're pretty much your own, uh, your yeah. own boss. So it's like, you're starting your own business. Mm -hmm. I love that. So let's talk about um, online brand building a little bit, because again, we, we go back to your love of photography and your, um, your love of connecting people and making connections. And so again, uh, I really got to see that in you when we were in Indianapolis at the AOPT <laughs> meeting, because for, for those who weren't there, we had like, a, we had an app for the meeting and it was pretty small. You know, you, you can pretty much start to recognize everybody by the last day of the meeting. And um, we were, were given the opportunity to take photos and post them and, you know, send them to each other and everything. And you were easily, Diane, the most prolific photographer that we, that we had. She took pictures of everyone giving their talks and the award ceremonies and these walks that we did in the morning just for fun, you know, and, um, a lot of it, I, I feel like a lot of ways that people make connections now, obviously, is through social media. And so if you're on LinkedIn or you're on Facebook or, or Instagram and you're trying to show people, show prospective employers, you know, who you are and what you're about, I, do you have any ideas on online brand building or yeah, how, how, you, how do you show people who you are through social media? Yeah, I think... Yeah, I, I really did get carried away there. Sometimes I'm a little obsessive. I wanted I wanted to actually <laughs> I loved it. Well, I have to say, in my own postdoc, I wasn't allowed to go to any scientific conferences because I was uh, they didn't allow anyone to go unless you had a paper that was ready to be published. So in the three years I was there, mm. I only had one paper, and I think that um, go it's vital to go to conferences and. Um, so, so I know that there's a lot of people, especially early career scientists, that they go and give their talk and then they say, oh, I don't have a picture of myself doing that. So it was almost like my gift to everybody to have a picture of everyone doing that. And, um, mm -hmm. and also to tell others how awesome they were, how awesome that presentation was. Like there's mm -hmm. at least one to three to 10 things that I learned from each presentation. It just blows my mind. and. Wow you know, that, um, whatever blow mind emoji app sometimes that that's what I'm like at every meeting at, at every meeting. Um, so to build a social media brand, um, yeah. So I think that, um, always being, always being positive and supportive. I think that's, that's really important both of yourself. Don't be down on yourself as well as True. others. Um, but I think that, uh, for scientists, it's a good way. Social media is a great way. If, if, if social media would have been big when I was doing my postdoc and <laughs> I won't even say, okay, yeah, it was 2001 to 2004. Okay. So like, you know, I don't think LinkedIn and Twitter, whatever the X, whatever, it wasn't around then social media wasn't, wasn't big. And so, um, if you didn't go to a meeting, it's kind of like, if a tree falls in a forest, 
right? Yeah. Does, does any, if yeah. no one is there to see it, does anyone care? And I think that uh, that's the reason why with Bright Focus, we fund a lot of travel fellowships to go to conferences. Mm. And I love taking pictures and, and so, so if you want to build your brand, um, like sci science uh, needs to be built upon by everybody else, right? And so you sure. need to share your ideas, right? Like, of course, protect mm -hmm. yourself if you want to patent it, whatever, but you, your ideas are important and no one can build upon yeah. them unless you share them. And so I think, dude, don't be afraid of sharing your ideas and not just your own research, but others. And you just say, wow, like I never thought about that before. Like one of the posts I did recently, you know, was something, I think it was from the Parkinson's field where they actually are using the eye to diagnose, you know, Parkinson's just like in Alzheimer's, they're, mm -hmm. it, you know, that we funded some people and I'm saying, wow, we can yeah. learn a lot from this. You know, you used AI to analyze <laughs> this and that. So I think mm -hmm. that just showing that, um, getting your ideas out there and making science real, right? Um, yeah. That, it sounds weird, but scientists are people too. Um, we're not just the lab coat pocket protector, you know, you know <laughs> black glasses with the <laughs> whatever. Mm -hmm. The tape. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You'd actually be surprised at the number of people who have said to me in the past, uh, I'm surprised you have a PhD. You have social skills. Yes. And I'm actually kind of amazed that like the, the Sheldon Cooper trope is still oh, gosh, the Amy yes. Farrah Fowler trope is still is still alive and well. But this this is really interesting though, because I, I, I feel like some of the things that we've talked about here all come down to thinking of the people who inspire you, maybe taking them off the pedestal that you have put them on. But on top of that, maybe putting yourself up on a little bit of a pedestal. So, you know, it's okay to have a bit of an ego about what you do. It's okay to ask for someone to take a picture of you while you're giving your talk and maybe take a few because, you know, maybe you're making a weird face in one or two. And I say that as someone who takes horrible <laughs> candid photos, I'm always making very odd facial expressions, but you know, uh, but it's okay to ask for that. And it's okay to toot your own horn and post something that you discovered on, on social media, because that's all going to be part of brand building. And then if you can, maybe decrease the slope that you've put between yourself and the people that you admire and you put yourself on a little bit more of an even playing field, that's going to give you more encouragement and excitement. And you're going to be able to make more connections that way rather than feeling like, you know, you're, you're so small and these other people are, are the proverbial giants. And don't be afraid to show your uh, hobbies too. I think it's so cool. I see some scientists out there that like, you know, they do, they would work, you know, neurons <laughs> as coasters, oh, wow. or they'll knit, yeah. they'll knit neurons mm -hmm. or knit eyeballs or something. And <laughs> it's great. I love that. And you know, that that's really good, too. Because that's, I go again, I go back to my conversation that I had with Julie Tetzloff, you know, she said, you know, if you research the people that you're interviewing with, then you find out what they're interested in. You find out maybe where they're from or if they're big fans of mountain climbing or fishing or scuba diving or whatever it might be. And if you're sharing that, then that gives you something to connect with the first time you meet. And then if something comes from that, maybe maybe not right away, but I mean, it's never a bad idea to lay some of those foundations early. 
and just see where they go. Well, and don't forget when you're writing down, you know, when you're, I, I don't know if you put it in your official, um, you know, official NIH style CV, but you know, you can put it in mm -hmm. your um, LinkedIn, which is pretty much my like virtual CV. Um, and I yeah. don't, and I let everyone in the world see it because you never know. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, true. but don't forget your volunteer positions. So, um, there's a lot of skills that you can mm -hmm. show, uh, that, you know, you've, you've cut your teeth in your volunteer job and you might be ready to take it to the next level. So president of the Baltimore camera club, I have to run, you know, monthly board meetings, right. Things like yeah. that, you know, so, um, and make decisions on this and that, right. So that, um, that's something, um, that, you know, if someone had a similar type, uh, position or, you know, if, if you go to, uh, you know, an African country, you know, one time, uh, you know, two, one week a year to go, try and help with eye care or something. That's, that's amazing. And oh, also, yeah. you know, give, you know, volunteering at the local, you know, giving a presentation in your kid's class about eyeballs or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that should count as community service oh, yeah. <laughs> or volunteering no, at the I local agree. science uh, museum. Don't forget to. I think that's good advice for everybody, though, because I, you know, I, I, I recently had a conversation with a friend who, you know, maybe is feeling a little bit stuck. And I mentioned, you know, well, find women's organizations in engineering or find uh, other groups of people that you can mesh with, uh, either from a scientific perspective or from maybe a completely different perspective. Because I feel like as we get older, you know, we get a little pigeonholed necessarily in or maybe it's just stuck in our, <clears throat> stuck in our rut. For example, you know, we work, we parent, we take care of ourselves if we, if there's still time, you know, but branching out, I, I think it was <clears throat> Jacqueline Duvall who said, you know, you don't necessarily have to work in something that lights you on fire. That's what, that's what hobbies are for. That's what family is for travel and all these other things. And so if you also make sure that you make time for that, not only are you going to be more fulfilled, but it could actually help you make other connections in other parts of your life. Yes. Yeah. And, and definitely, I think my love of photography helped with the social media and, you know, bright focus mm -hmm. is benefiting from that too. Right. Um, yeah. so, uh, so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, that's definitely something to keep in mind. So my, I guess my, my last two things, one is, um, I, I, do you currently interview people for positions, um, or in the past have you, cause I'm curious, what what would you look for? in applicants like what would set an applicant apart for you in terms of a position yeah so so i've hired a number of people in my department and build mm -hmm. my department up it was just uh, me at one point and uh uh i was the sole phd uh, overseeing all three programs which meant i slept three hours a night <laughs> pretty much and uh then wow. convinced to bring in you know Preeti and sharon mm -hmm. right um, but there were other people in their positions as, as well. So I've, you know, I've, we've, I've put out and, and I've, tr I've created new, um, positions as well. You know, I have, um, Adrian Mekarek, who is, you know, the, the data management associate and looking after the, um, um, that's another thing like the, uh, grant grants management that's you know, mm -hmm. you can, you can do that. If you, um, don't want to do, uh, continue, do finish a PhD or do a postdoc, 
you know, you can totally go, especially if you're a U.S. citizen, definitely you could go to look on U.S. jobs and go to NIH and be a program officer. Uh, but I think data, data analysis and um, for a funding agency like ours, being able to, we have Proposal Central, all those applications come in and then you have the reviews that go out and there's this big cycle. That's that's a really cool career as well. When what and so what I look for, you know, in each of those jobs is different uh, based on the skills. What I look for in the person is the ability to, and I know this sounds trope, but work in a team, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. be open-minded to be able to listen, to contribute together, uh, and not be not be afraid to challenge me too. Uh, there's a lot of times okay. I have great ideas, but not all the time. And so I love it when, you know, uh, the experts uh, on my team tell me, hmm, maybe this could be an alternative <laughs> or, you know, yeah, you tell yeah. them you don't have to be so nice about it. You just say, wow, what about this? <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, I think that's really important um, when I'm looking to not have an ego too, because to be able to change on the fly or adapt, like every year we adapt our, um, adapt our uh, grant system. Uh, mm -hmm. The other thing is to be able to, uh, you don't have to be an extrovert. You can be an introvert. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, just need to be able to talk with people one-on-one -on -one to and be able to deliver bad news. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like you, you yeah. didn't get the grant, right? And a lot of times, uh, what would I call it? Kind of like a hot, a uh, hostage negotiator, you need to have those skills <laughs> when, <laughs> because I've had many times where people who didn't get the grant and they're very angry at me, you know, they'll see me at a meeting and they'll scream in my face and swear at me or on the phone. Oh my gosh. Do you know who I am? Why did you not give me the funds and stuff like that? And you just have to say, you know, like, cause you just have to understand maybe that was their last chance to get a grant or maybe they're just in mm -hmm. a whatever mood. And you just have to say, well, you know, I'm, it was because, you know, sorry that you're feeling that way, but you know what, don't give up, you know, here, let me help you. You know, a lot of times these days, mm -hmm. you know, funding is, is short and it's like, you had an innovation here, but there's this and this and this let's, and I can give you extra ideas. So, um, so most of the time, you know, uh, I pride myself on it. And then I think I, I look for that ability in someone to be able to, uh, you know, like a hostage negotiator takes someone who's angry at the beginning. And then at the end, they're purring like a little kitten and say, thank you so much for that information. You know, not exactly like that, but it's like, you know, yeah, always talk people down. someone something mm -hmm. and respect people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Times you're probably going to hear someone saying you need a hostage negotiator. That's true. That's probably true. I think, though, I, I like that idea, though, of being able to communicate bad news, because mm -hmm. I've talked about this in the podcast before, the ability to have these soft skills, you know, as as scientists, you know, um, we value brevity. 
and particularly in emails or over text, if facial expressions are not involved, brevity can come across as being very rude. Yeah. And there's been many emails that I have received, you know, in all my time in, in academics. So I'm thinking, geez, what did I do wrong? Well, nothing. <laughs> this person just said their mind on six different things, you know, but being able to maximize your ability to have different types of conversations, difficult conversations, easy conversations, write a, write a good email, you know, um, like you said, maybe try your hand at hostage negotiation. <laughs> Actually writing a good email is still, still elusive to me because sometimes when mm. I try and take all the emotion out of it, you know, it's, it seems hostile. <laughs> so when yes. I put in too much and then, emotion, it seems hostile. I don't know. Like I just, you just kind of have to try and use emojis or something. I agree. I don't know. <laughs> well, also it, it's funny. There was actually something that I saw on Instagram recently about the number of exclamation points that are in a text or in an email, you know, cause if, if every sentence ends in an exclamation point, you feel like they're yelling at you, but if none of them end in exclamation points and it's totally apathetic. So there's gotta be, it's, it's, it's a very fine balance. And then, yeah, if you throw in emojis, that takes care of all of it, but you don't want to come off as crazy, but you don't want to come off as, you know, totally disinterested either. So it's a, that's a, it's an elusive topic for me as well. I, I find that's, myself that's, that's going for another conversation. <laughs> exactly. So what do you want, uh, if listeners are interested in learning more about Bright Focus or if they're interested in applying for a grant or what types of things that you, you fund, what, what, what do you want to tell everybody about Bright Focus? Well, um, okay. So, right. Uh, we're going to be changing our website within the next, you know, six months or so. But right now, if you mm -hmm. can see the kind of things that we fund, um, if you go to science.brightfocus.org and it's slash apply dash grant just click on mm -hmm. the apply for a grant big button um then uh you'll be able to see our three programs uh there uh all of them have postdoctoral fellowships and mm -hmm. um there's eligibility don't forget to look at the faqs uh but we'll accept applications um it's um investigator initiated so we don't put out direct calls uh, so, oh, and, and we kind of consider ourselves to be like angel funders, right? So we're, or mm -hmm. we're funding you as a CEO, we're giving you seed funding for your IPO, <laughs> which is your, uh, -huh. idea, uh which is <laughs> an innovative idea that, uh, maybe you don't have enough preliminary data to apply for an mm -hmm. RO one, but that's what we're here to help you for our two or three year grant will help you then develop that crazy little idea. It's not incremental. Mm -hmm. That's what we, we try for it to be. It has to be something new and innovative. And then, uh, then we love to see people get follow on funding mainly, you know, from NIH or sometimes industry. Uh, so, that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's another thing, a source of, of, of funding. So, you know, we did this survey a while back, but you know, people go on to get 10 times of funding that we give them. So our little $200,000 wow. grant will help you get 2 million with the preliminary wow. data that you get. So um, that's a really good ROI. Yeah. And so that's for grants. And we also have fast tracks. These are like basically information boot camps, right? Uh, 
yeah. that uh, for You're wonderful. I went to the glaucoma one. That it was phenomenal. Yes, yes, and that's going to be happening. I think in fall 2025. So look out for that mm -hmm. uh, for the glaucoma fast track. And awesome. uh, the other thing is the common features of neurodegenerative disease. So that's mm -hmm. one that I've helped to organize and pull together a committee. And that happens before ADPD, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. But we bring in people from vision and Alzheimer's to talk about the common features. And this year it's all about um, uh, making order of the chaos, of the chaos using big data right for uh -huh. understanding disease biomarkers and diagnostics and clinical trials so that should be fun wow come and join us that's awesome <laughs> that sounds fascinating it really does yeah and then don't forget cool. to apply for travel fellowships we we fund a whole bunch like we funded it a travel fellowships to aopt and arvo mm -hmm. and uh the icer biennial and now the icer bright uh bright focus glaucoma so many many different Awesome. Meeting. That's a that's a brightfocus.org. Yes, brightfocus.org. Yep. Awesome. Dr. Diane Bovenkamp, I cannot thank you enough. This was so much fun and you had so much great information to give. And I, I think this is going to be incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. And uh if I could just, you know, close with Please. some thoughts uh for people Please. going forward. I just mean like um, you know, don't give up. Um, resilience and grit are your friends, right? Uh, trust your gut. Um, get a seat at the table. What is it they say? If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Always speak up. Even if someone tells you that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not professional to speak up. You can always speak up and it's better to ask for, uh, forgiveness than permission. But that said, you don't need to uh, go it alone either. So I know I've been in my career, I've been a uh, pull myself up by my bootstraps, uh, kind of apply for a thousand jobs and find the needle in the haystack. But you don't need to do it that way. <laughs> yeah. You can get a shortcut and try and put together a panel of mentors. But um, but anyways, that was just um, I'm so, so, so grateful uh, that you invited me to, uh, be on this, uh, this podcast. And, uh, I really hope that, um, anybody watching, like, please talk with Cynthia, talk with me. Don't be afraid to, um, just move forward and, and follow your passion. I, I have to second that. I, I have absolutely no problem with anyone ever asking me questions or reaching out. I have I have been sick lately, so I know I have a couple messages waiting for me at LinkedIn, and uh, I'm not ignoring anybody. But uh, I mean, no one I've ever spoken to has said, no, I don't want trainees or anyone to reach out to me to ask me about my career. Everyone's open to it. And we are, and I would guess almost everybody is. And if the worst thing that happens is they just don't respond to your email, that's fine. Yes. You the know? worst they can say is no. <laughs> exactly. There's nothing wrong with or that. Or ghost so, you as, uh, as <laughs> happens yes. these days. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Diane, for your time today. Great. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much to Dr. Diane Bovenkamp for joining me today. Again, the Bright Focus Foundation can be found at brightfocus.org. And the book that she recommended was um, 
Leaving the Ivory Tower by Cynthia Robbins Roth. So thank you very much for joining us and see you next time.